that go ahead and get your Bibles out and go to Ephesians chapter 5. We have been in this series since we launched September 9th, which has been, man, nine months ago now. We've just been unpacking this really like what is my favorite book in the entire New Testament. It has like rocked my world. I've read this letter so many times. And I told you uh, on September 9th that this letter is kind of like you could approach it like a first date. Like you could read it one time and you could learn enough about God and the gospel to change your life forever. But the more, you, the more time you spend in it and the more you invest in it, the more you actually unpack the richness and the depth and the beauty of God in it. And that's what it's been for me. It's also been incredibly controversial. <laughs> like... It, when you, go, when you go passage by passage through a letter, you don't get to skip stuff. You don't get to like choose the, the fun stuff to talk about and ignore the, the hard stuff and the difficult stuff. And so we've been challenging each other. I've been challenged and convicted through this. And today is going to be no different. Today is probably the most controversial passage in the entire New Testament. Maybe, no, not the Bible. There's some crazy stuff in the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> it's probably the most controversial passage in the New Testament. It's Paul's instructions for husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. It's controversial because it, first of all, confronts our culture and the way we've been colonized by our culture. But it's also controversial because it is more often than not misused misinterpreted and misapplied by just about everyone, no matter what side you're on. And so we're going to try to clear up some of that and, and hopefully um, show you some really important and, and beautiful and mysterious things about marriage. But let me just kind of give you a heads up of where we're going. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about romance. Uh, we're going to talk about the way men and women mesh together in this institution called marriage. Um, we're going to talk about why marriage is a priority, why we should care about it, even though our culture doesn't really care about it, why we should chase after it and stay in it if we're there, and why it's a good thing, and why God invented it in the first place. And even when the passion dies or the fire is like fading and you're going back and forth between like, I can't stand you and I love you, like why it is so amazing. And the Apostle Paul answers all of those questions in our text today. And uh, he calls it the mystery of marriage. So if you're there, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to go from verses 21 to 33, and we're going to do a 30,000-foot view of marriage today. Look at it with me. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become 
one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a lot. And we could spend four, five, six weeks on all of this, unpacking every word and and phrase and detail and principle. But today, I just want to give you this overarching 30,000-foot view and vision of what God really intends marriage to be. There are four things I'm going to show you, just so you know where we're going. We're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. We're going to talk about the principle of marriage. We're going to talk about the picture of marriage. And then finally, the power of marriage. I'm Baptist, right? We got to alliterate stuff. So you're welcome. Maybe you'll remember it. First, the purpose of marriage. Marriage exists to help us become the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be in this lifetime. That was a mouthful. Let me say it again. Marriage exists to help us become the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be in this lifetime. In other words, the goal of marriage is to help get you and your spouse as close to the image of Christ as humanly possible this side of heaven. Because the best version of you is the one that looks the most like the ultimate human, the perfect man, Jesus. And and Paul is saying that one of the most important and Vital ways that we do that is in this context of marriage. Gary Thomas proves this over and over and over again in a book that he's written called Sacred Marriage. If you haven't read that book, I would, I would highly recommend it. We should probably get a couple copies in, in the book nook. But he asks this question over and over and over again throughout the book. Um, what if God designed marriage not so much to make us happy and more so to make us holy, to make us like him? Well, verses 25 and 27 answer that question with an emphatic yes, Gary. That's exactly what it's about. Look again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, make her holy or or beautify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Did you catch all of that? Marriage was designed to sanctify us and to cleanse us and to get us to a point where we stand before God sparkling like diamonds without any spot or blemish. I can remember buying a diamond for Caroline. There's like this whole process. I thought I was going to go on eBay. I thought I was just going to buy the cheapest one and it was going to be big, but it was going to be cheap because I'm poor. I was in seminary and like that was going to be okay. Ignorance is totally bliss, though, with diamonds, because I found these amazing, huge diamonds on, on eBay, and every single one of them, and they were so cheap, and every single one of them said, uh, in brackets, enhanced on it. And I was like, sweet, I'm getting an enhanced, like, three-carat diamond for 100 bucks. This is awesome. And, uh, and then I talked to my friend, who just so happened to be a gemologist, and he's like, yeah, enhanced means they, like, basically got this diamond and they painted it because there are so many spots and blemishes and, like, discolorations on this thing. Do not buy an enhanced diamond. I'm like, no. Like, my vision of my wife walking around with a Beyonce ring just, like, vanished before my eyes. 
There's all these things, but basically what, what, what Jesus is saying is, like, I'm not just going to paint you. Like, I'm not just going to, you know, cover you up and, and like, it's like, you know, you're, you're really ugly on the inside but beautiful on the outside. No, he's like, I'm just going to take away all the spots from the inside out. I'm going to make you perfect. I'm taking out all the blemishes. There's not going to be any discoloration. All of that stuff that you know you have inside of you, I'm going to make it beautiful. And I'm going to present you before my Father in splendor. In other words, the relationship between husbands and wives is a lot less like Romeo and Juliet and a lot more like Christ and his church. So it's, it's not marked by this reckless, selfish, and ultimately deadly love. It's marked by thoughtful and sacrificial and ultimately life-giving love, one where you give up your needs so that your spouse thrives, so that your spouse moves like one step closer day by day into glory. That's what marriage is. Now, this biblical vision of the purpose of marriage is like in stark contrast to our culture's vision of the purpose of marriage, is it not? And mainly for two reasons. The first reason is that our our culture values romance as the ultimate goal. And this vision says, yes, romance is important, but it's not ultimate. If you set out to help your spouse become like their glory self, romance is going to happen because romance helps you thrive. Now, it's going to look different as the years go by. For example, when Caroline and I were dating, and I, she hates when I use her as illustrations, so I'm so sorry, babe, but it's about marriage, so I have to. Um, just don't look at her, okay? Um, but when we were dating, I, when I was wooing my wife, when I was pursuing my wife, I would, I would spend hours on Microsoft Paint, and I would make these elaborate pictures, not stick figure stuff, like elaborate scenes, all kinds of detail that were funny, and I'd send them to her when she was at work because I knew that they would make her laugh. Like, we have this sense of humor thing. Like, that's what, that's what first attracted us to each other. We just laugh at the same stuff. It's like, I know that this is going to make her laugh. I know she's going to be at work with those seventh graders, and they're going to be driving her crazy, but she's going to see this picture, and she's going to love it, and she did love it. That's the way I I pursued her, and it was romantic in a weird way, right? Now, I cannot imagine sitting down at Microsoft Paint for a couple of hours right now to make her a picture, and and at the same time think that she's going to appreciate that. Like, she's going to cry and not tears of joy. She's going to be like, the kids, like the house, the yard, like the car can help me. Like, oh, I made you this painting. No, the way we woo and the way we pursue and the way we date looks totally different now. We still do that. But now it looks like, I just want to help you thrive. And I don't do it perfectly, okay? One example is like, I know she loves cleanliness. And I don't care at all. Um, She, uh, we just bought this little uh, house off of independence and the master uh, bathroom is like a closet so she's like I'm not going in there like you can have that so I turned it to my dirty clothes hamper okay like literally the bathtub is where my work clothes go and I got this bag it's crazy I love it I know she doesn't love that though so like my car is a mess her car is spotless and so like yesterday we we got straw to to mulch this natural area that we're working on and I knew that she would really appreciate it 
if I vacuumed out her car. Now, if that were in my car, I wouldn't have touched it. But I, I did it for her. Now, that seems silly, and I do not do this perfectly. And, and the, my bathroom is a perfect example of that. But yesterday, man, I love my wife well, and I vacuumed out her car. And so here's the point, guys. Even though romance isn't the ultimate goal in this vision, if you chase holiness and you chase the beautification of your spouse, man, it just happens. Even though happiness isn't the ultimate goal, when you've got your spouse's best interest at heart, guess what happens? You have a happy marriage. It happens. But if you make happiness and romance the ultimate goal, the opposite happens. Because as soon as the fire starts to fade, or as soon as your husband like, turns the bathroom into a dirty clothes hamper, and you're like, did I marry a pig? And, and as soon as you like, start seeing all of these weird idiosyncrasies and sin, if romance is the goal, then what happens? You start thinking, like, did I marry the right person? Is there someone else out there for me that would be better for me? Should I have gotten married at all? And everything crumbles. And what you and I need to understand is that our culture has a vision that says romance is ultimate. Is it not surprising that marriage is in the state it is in currently? It can't work. Here's the thing I want to show you because we've all been shaped and colonized by our culture. This vision of marriage that like romance is God and romance is king is, is really new. It didn't show up till the 11th century, like late 11th century, and it wasn't main, made mainstream until like the 18th century with the romantics and the later romantics, guys like Shelley and, and Byron and Keats, and they basically came up with this idea and, and popularized it at least that if you marry someone for any other reason than love, then you are committing a crime against yourself. It's like 18th century stuff. We've been around for a lot longer than that, okay? But if you looked at all of their relationships, all of those romantics, all of those authors, and we love like the idea of the endless spring of love. And if, if you like poetry, man, it's awesome. You just like read that stuff and like, yeah, I want that. But if, if you're chasing after that, it, it ends up crumbling and every single one of their relationships like that. This is such a monumental shift in the thinking of culture that C.S. Lewis, who is this brilliant philosopher and author, and, and I quote him probably too much, um, but he said that there were only three or four other shifts in the thought process of culture that matched this one in the history of humanity. This shift about marriage being of all about love and romance. Three or four in all of history. So this is why people freak out when the eternal springtime of love starts to feel cold. This is why we start looking to the left and, and to the right and we're at the gym and we start, oh man, like, I wonder, what if? And we start asking all of these questions. It's why we think something's wrong, we don't know what to do, and we find ourselves caring for our spouse out of a sense of duty rather than delight. But guys, romance is too fragile a foundation to build a marriage on. To quote Gary Thomas again, romantic love has no elasticity to it. It can never be stretched. It simply 
shatters. And so it's no wonder that our culture that holds up romance as the supreme goal and builds everything else around it would have marriages that are, are falling apart. And some of you have been there and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But what if it's more than that? Like what if, it's, what if marriage is more than just passion and, and fulfillment and excitement? What if the ultimate goal of marriage is not to find the eternal springtime of ecstasy and enjoyment, but rather to help cleanse and to wash and sanctify spouses so that they look as much like Jesus in this lifetime as humanly possible. That's what Paul's calling us to, and it is totally countercultural, guys. The, the second way this biblical vision of the purpose of marriage like, flies in the face of our cultural vision is that it starts out with the idea that we aren't that great. Like it just starts there. We actually need someone who will step in and help us change. It's funny how our culture pushes the exact opposite. You need to find someone who will love you for you, the way that you are, and not demand you change anything about yourselves, because if they do that, they're actually your enemy. This is like the Disney anthropology, right? Believe in yourself, follow your heart. If anyone tries to get in your way, man, they are not your friend find someone else. And so when we're looking for a spouse, the last thing on our minds is trying to find someone who will help us change. We're looking for romance and fun and companionship and maybe a little added income, basically an add-on, someone to enhance our already perfect selves. But then Jesus comes along and, and he turns that humanistic mindset upside down and he causes us to see that we're nowhere near fine. Like nowhere close to perfection. We're nowhere close to being everything that God designed us to be. We're actually twisted and blemished and destitute in our filth and our sin. And yet what Jesus does is he comes and he, he sees us exactly where we are. He sees who we are and, and the, the deepest hidden parts of our hearts, the, the parts that we don't let anyone else see. And he says, listen, I love you in spite of that. But I love you so much, I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm actually going to transform you and make you into something beautiful. Yes, Jesus treasures you just the way that you are. Man, thank God for that. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. But he has a greater vision for your heart and a more glorious vision for your life than you could ever imagine, than you ever thought possible. And so when he sees you, he sees you in eternity as a glorified human being. And every step of this life, he's just taking you into greater and greater glory. I love how Jan Johnson put it in her book, Invitation to the Jesus Life. She says, God treasures the self we keep hidden and wants to transform that self into the person we'd love to be. I love that because, man, I know the person I'd love to be and the person I am is like really, really far away from each other. But he wants to take what's blemished and he wants to make it brilliant. And then he presents us again to his father. Look what I made. Jesus comes to bring about change. 
This is what love does. And so what you and I need to do more than anything for our spouses is to see them as Christ sees them. As shadows of glory. Yes, we love them where they are. Yes, we, we love them in the midst of their sin. But we see the glory that Jesus wants to make them into and we just want to help them get there so that they thrive and they're cleansed and they're beautified. Uh, man, Caroline and I, uh, when we were dating, we broke up. I, I broke up with her five months into it. This is, guys are stupid. I was a stupid guy. Um, the guys aren't stupid. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. We're not. But in some ways, we are. Um, and, uh, and I broke up with her. Three weeks later, I realized that was stupid. And so I was like, okay, I got to get her back. And so three weeks later, I went to her, and I was like, after church one day, I'm like, hey, I, I made a huge mistake, and uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I really want to be with you, and you're everything I want, and all of this stuff. And I expected her to just like jump in my arms and be like, I prayed for this moment. And, and she looked at me, and she was like, yeah, I don't really think you're the kind of guy I want to date. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's not how, this is not how it's supposed to go. Like, I had this scenario, like, plotted out. It was planned. We're supposed to be hugging right now. And, um, and you know, on the path to marriage again. And she's like, you know what? Um, I've had some time to think these last three weeks. And she just started, like, pointing out, yes, I care about you, and yes, I love you, and there's things I love about you, but, like, you are really arrogant and dogmatic in the way that you share your opinions, and you show no grace to anyone who disagrees with you. I was like, oh. And, and then she said, and, and you also, like, in the heat of the moment, whether it's sports or disagreements or traffic or whatever, you don't control your anger, and that, that shows something's off in your heart, and that needs to be fixed. Jeez. Um, and she's like, I just don't, I don't think I could, I don't think I could marry a guy like that. And, uh, and I wanted her back before that conversation. After that conversation, I was like, I have to have this woman in my life. Because she doesn't just love me the way I am. She sees who I could become. Someone who's not an arrogant jerk. Who's not dogmatic. Who does show grace to people who disagree with him. Someone who doesn't get angry every time the heat comes up because there's something different going on. I'm like, I need someone in my life who's going to help cleanse me and take my blemishes and make them brilliant. Well, thank God after three months of like really going hard after her, like I broke her down and I wore her down and she married me. So but I would not be the man I am today further along in this process of beautification without her. I learned more about grace from her than I ever learned from seminary. More about humility, more about servanthood, more about what it looks like to love our kids like Christ than I've ever read in a book. So that's what marriage is all about. The second thing I want to show you is the principle of marriage, which is this idea of headship. And this is where it gets really confusing, really difficult, and where people just go all over the place in their misinterpretation and misapplication. But look again at verse 22. Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Again, this is really um, culturally and maybe with your like familial past or, or your tradition or your politics. Like There are so many different things that we throw at this verse when we're interpreting it. It's very difficult because we come in with baggage and biases. And so we got to recognize that stuff. If you lean left, you'll see the word submit and immediately like, try to change its meaning. Several uh, liberal scholars that I read uh, try to interpret it as encourage or help or make a commitment to, which are really attempts to try to soften this idea of like women or wives submitting uh, to husbands. But the problem with all of those attempts is that the word submit in the Greek always means the same thing. I think I have a slide for this. I don't know if I do or not, but it's, it's hippotasso. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I can read Greek. I can't say it. And uh, it just simply means to arrange under. A few examples in scripture. Romans 8, 7, it's used to talk about submitting to God's law. Uh, Ephesians 1, describes everything being subjected to Christ or placed underneath Christ's feet. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 5, it's used to talk about younger men submitting to older men. So there's this idea here that as equal image bearers of God, wives have the same amount of value and worth and dignity, but when they enter into marriage, they, they choose to take on the role of the church. And relate to their husband as the church does with Christ. And what's really important for us to see here is this passage doesn't say anything about women as a whole submitting to men. That's what Aristotle taught. That's what the Greeks taught. All women were intrinsically of lesser value. And so you had to submit to everyone's husband in Greek culture. And Paul comes along and says, I don't know where he got that from. You're not intrinsically of less value. You don't have to submit to your sister's husband or your best friend's husband. You submit to the husband that you chose because that's your choice that you made. Your own husband. Submit to your own husband. And Paul uses this middle voice, which in the Greek shows that it's, it's a voluntary decision. She doesn't have to make this decision. She chooses, and she says, I'm going to enter into this marriage relationship, and I, I'm choosing to take on the role of, of the church, which we're going to get to in a minute when we talk about the picture of marriage. But in other words, if you choose to get married, Paul's saying, you take on this, this role of the church, so submit yourself to your husband as the head, just as Christ is the head. You're choosing to place yourself under his authority. Now, there is nothing confusing about the meaning of, of this word in the Greek. The problem, though, is that when it's used to describe wives and husbands, man, things can get really messy. How does, how does this principle not imply that women have less value than men? How does this idea of submission not rob them of dignity and freedom and power? And, and honestly, guys, these are really good and fair questions. In a lot of ways, I think they flow out of the misuse and misapplication of this text by people on the other side. So if you're, if you're leaning left, you're going to try to change the meaning. If you lean right, you're just going to totally abuse this and jack it up. Distort it and twist it so that somehow, like, women should never work outside the home. And, like, their only role is to serve their husband and, and cook and, and clean and do laundry and take care of kids. And a woman's place is in the home, as the quote goes. 
I can't tell you how many college guys I've counseled, and I was a college pastor before this, who thought this is what marriage was. I can't wait to get a wife so I don't have to cook anymore. I'm like, oh, hold up, hold up, man. You're like, you got that wrong. I can't wait to have a wife so I don't have to do my laundry, man. Like they just, they're looking for a glorified mom, a mom with benefits, and it's stupid. It's just flat out. The result, though, is deadly. Man, the result of this left-leaning is deadly. The result of this right-leaning is domineering, chauvinistic, and even abusive men that take a passage and use it to assert their authority and make their demands and hold their wives in spiritual captivity. And that's wrong. This is actually what Jesus accused the Pharisees of in Matthew chapter 20. They had a God-given role of authority. And yet, instead of using it to serve other people, they lorded it over them. They abused their role that God had given them. And Jesus said, man, I'm casting you aside. Husbands, if you're operating like this, Here's the thing. I'm going to get off a soapbox for a minute before I get really mad. It doesn't matter if we come at this from the left or the right when we read it. We just start throwing our ideas at it, making it say what we want it to say or making it say what our dad told us it said. My dad never cooked, so I'm never going to cook, you know? And we just make it mean what we want it to mean. But no matter what way we're looking at it, verse 25 stops us dead in our tracks. It's like Paul knows what we're going to do. Paul knows we're going to try to twist it. And he's like, hold on, let me nip that in the bud. Look at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, this is what headship looks like. Sorry, I think I put too many verses on that. Lisa, my bad. Self-giving, self-denying, sacrificial service and love, just like Jesus. That's what headship is. In other words, while wives voluntarily choose to submit to the headship of their husbands and give him the final say, husbands voluntarily choose to give up their lives for their wives. So rather than using God-given authority and God-given role to get our own way and to please ourselves, we lay it down so that we can care for our wife. We use it to help move our wives into greater and greater glory so that they thrive in every way because this is what Jesus does for his bride. You remember Philippians 2? God has given Jesus this authority and this power and this glory. And, and Paul says he didn't view it as something to be taken advantage of. But he set it aside and he became a man. He became a servant and he washed our feet and he was beaten, he was bruised, and ultimately he was hung on a cross so that he could die. He gave up his glory so that he could usher us into glory. He was the ultimate spouse, the ultimate husband. Practically, this has dramatic impl implications on, on our marriages, and they, they play out every single day. Uh, for example, we've got a newborn. She's two months old. If you, if you have newborns, or you got babies, or you've had them in the past, try to remember, okay? You don't sleep, right? 
There's no schedule. And so you're tired. And I think that there's this, at least I feel it, it's never been spoken of, but there's almost like this natural urge to compete for rest. You know? (laughs) Like, okay, the kids are doing some stuff over here. Baby's sleeping. One of us gets to take a nap. Who's it going to be? And you never actually say it like that. Like, you don't come to blows. You're not arm wrestling. But it's like this, man, I'm so tired today. Like, as soon as I walk in the door, oh, man, I'm so tired today. I'm, like, setting it up. Uh, I'm, like, preparing her for the fact that I'm going to take a nap, you know, because I said it first. I said I was tired first. And then you're like, oh, no, uh, man, I didn't. I, I had to get up, like, five times last night. Oh, I got up six, you know. And, and, and it's like this, this back and forth of, like, you are competing for rest. Christ-like headship, though, means that in those moments when we're both tired and we both need a nap and only one person gets it, guess who gets it? The person who's not told to be like Jesus and give up their life so that the other person can thrive, right? I got to give up my life. I got to lay it down. And not compete for rest, but say, man, I'm ha- I happily sacrifice my rest because this is what Jesus did for me. Take a nap. That's hard. I could easily say, Caroline, remember Ephesians 5.22. I'm the head. I'm the man. Like, this is what dads do on Sunday afternoon. They, they take naps. And then all she'd have to say is, yes, babe, but remember Ephesians 5.25. You have to lay your life down for me. (laughs) Like, who wins that? Right? She gets the nap. Christ-like headship always operates like this. Doesn't mean we always do it, but Christ-like headship always operates like that. So husbands, you know you are loving your wife like Jesus when you stop competing for your own desires and you sacrifice them, you hang them up on a cross so that your wife can have hers met. So the big question is, why would wives not want to submit to that kind of headship? That's the whole point here. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Wives, joyfully, willingly submit to their headship. And this leads us to the third thing that Paul wants us to see about marriage. It's the picture of marriage. Verses 31 through 32, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. We've been all over this like this whole time, but Paul says marriage is a profound mystery. Not because it's hard. Not because men and women are going to leave their wives and like men are from Mars and women are from Venus and they're going to try to become one flesh. Like that's not why it's a mystery. It's a mystery because it represents a greater reality. It's a picture or or a parable of Christ and his church. In other words, it's a picture of the gospel. Guys, our marriages point to a love that is greater than us. Our marriages point to our redemption in Christ and the beautification of the Spirit and this like foreknowing love of God that he placed on us before the foundations of the world. As 1 John 4, 12 says, and I, I say this, I use this verse at every wedding I ever do. No one has ever seen God, 
But when we love each other, guess who they see? God. No one has ever seen God. But husbands, when you love your wives selflessly, sacrificially, and unconditionally, Wives, when you submit to your husbands humbly and respectfully and and meekly, we make God known. He will be seen in us. And so the profound mystery of our marriages is that they enable us to put God on display, to make his love known to the world around us. God is the ultimate reality of the universe, not love or romance or whatever else you might think it is. And it's through his gospel that we relate to him. And so marriage serves as this parable to tell the story. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of the gospel. Guys, if you and I don't get this, like if we don't get the picture of marriage, we we definitely won't get the purpose. Uh, We definitely won't get the principle either. Because it all flows out of this amazing mystery. So the question that you have to ask yourself, that I have to ask myself, is does my marriage exist for me or does it exist for the glory of God? (laughs) I told you it was going to be fun today. Does my marriage exist for me or does it exist for the glory of God? Does my spouse exist to serve me, to meet my needs and advance my little kingdom, or do we exist together to serve each other so that we can advance his name and his kingdom in the world? Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking like, holy cow, Ben, like how can anyone ever live like this? This is way too hard. You don't know my spouse. You don't know our history. You don't know our issues. You don't know how we fight. There is no way that we could ever start loving each other like this and making God known in and through our marriage. And I would simply say, you are absolutely right. 100%. You can't do it. I can't do it. Caroline can't do it. It is too hard. In fact, it is impossible. (laughs) Which leads us to the fourth thing that Paul wants us to see about marriage, and that is the power of marriage. There's a reason that this passage on marriage comes directly after the passage on waking up and being filled with the Spirit. There's no transition. It's be filled with the Spirit. And all of these things start happening, including submit to one another as you submit to Christ. There's no transition. Be filled with the Spirit. This is what marriage looks like. It's a result. It's because this kind of marriage does not happen unless you are getting supernatural, gospel-based, Holy Spirit power and ability. It just will not happen. Meaning if you aren't fueling up on the love of God, if you're not letting his love consume your mind and satisfy your heart and meet your every need and capture your imagination and give your soul rest, then you will never be able to love, you'll never be able to submit to, and you'll never be able to serve your spouse. It's just not going to happen. If you aren't resting in the love of God on a day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, basis, you will not have any love to give. Because you'll be constantly needing your spouse to fill you up with her love or his love. 
On the other hand, though, if you are fueling up with the love of God, if you are resting in it, if you are being satisfied with it, you won't need your spouse to fill you up. And not only will you not need him or her to fill you up, you'll actually have something to give them as well. Tim Keller calls this principle love philanthropy. And oh man, I love this picture. I don't think he's ever had a bad illustration in his life, but you know what a philanthropist is, right? A philanthropist is someone who gets a lot of money over here, whether it's from like family or trust fund or work or whatever, and then just like gives a ton of money over here. And the giving over here happens because he got or she got over over here. And the more that person gets over here, the more they can give over here. And, and Keller talks about this idea of love philanthropy. If you want to give a ton of love to your spouse, man, you got to be getting a ton of it over here. And the more you get over here, the more you're going to give over here. So if you cut this off, if you're not getting anything, guess what? You're not giving anything either. Caroline and I have seen this over and over and over in our relationship. It started year one or year two. Um, I have a terrible memory. I'm really fuzzy on dates and stuff. But I think it was first year, maybe second year. And, and we got to this point, man, where we're just like in this cycle of he's not meeting my needs, so I'm not going to meet his. And, and I was like, she's not meeting my needs, and I'm not going to meet hers. And it was just like this cycle. And it's a cycle of bitterness and a cycle of resentment and scorekeeping and, oh, man, just like anger to the point where we, we and it was our first or second year of marriage, we just kind of looked at each other. We weren't mad. We weren't angry, but we were just like defeated. And, and I was like, I, I don't. We, we don't even like, like each other. I don't even view you as a friend. I don't even want to be in the same room as you. And, and we, we literally just like, see, I was on the bed, she was standing in the bathroom door, and we're just talking, we're totally defeated. And, and we were just like, what do we do? Like, we're, we, we're not going to get divorced because I mean, we're committed to this. Like, what do we do? And the only thing we could think was to just start praying. And so we did. We started praying. And, and she prayed for herself and I prayed for myself. And in our prayer, it was like the light bulb came on. Like, when was the last time I prayed? Like, when was the last time I focused on my heart instead of like hers? When was the last time I asked God to like be real in a day? And not just like this thing I was studying in seminary or preaching on Sundays. And it's like it just hit us, and it it didn't take long at all. We actually just both individually started chasing Jesus again, and guess what happened? We liked each other. It was crazy. And we go through this cycle like every year, okay? Because, man, and this is what I've confessed to you, like, uh, when we were going through Ephesians 3 and this idea of the fullness of God and resting in his fullness, and if he's the son, we stay in the son, and we don't go back and forth but man, don't we all kind of go back and forth? And we know we don't even have to ask anymore. We don't even have to talk about it anymore. We know our hearts. And I know if I'm starting to feel discontented or resentful, I know. I'm like, man, I got to get my heart right because I I haven't been with Jesus. She knows the same thing. Because man, if you're getting it from Jesus, if you're getting that love, if you're being satisfied by by that love, if if you're comprehending what Paul says is, incomprehensible. 
the height, depth, width, breadth of the love of God, if you're being filled with the fullness of God, you start loving people like he does. So Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. This isn't a sermon about marriage. (laughs) This is a sermon like every other sermon that we have had for like the last three months about chasing the presence and the power and the fullness of the glory of God. Because when you are filled with the Spirit, oh man, your wife's going to thrive. Your husband's going to thrive. Because you're thriving. So man, we got to go hard after the love of God. Ultimately, the only way to display the gospel is to rest in it. To remember that Jesus was and is the perfect spouse, that he loved us and served us and washed our feet and hung on a cross even when we wanted nothing to do with him. That even as he was hanging on the cross for us and we were betraying him and abandoning him and running away and being embarrassed by him, he stayed with us, suffered for us, gave up his life so that we might live and showed us what love looks like. That's the gospel. So guys, this sermon really is about letting the gospel mark you and consume you and satisfy you so that you can love like Jesus. And as a result, may his name be glorified in our marriages.